0: and welcome to Silence, a podcast where women get really honest about surviving and thriving in what often feels like a man's world. My guests are wonder women from the fields of science, technology, engineering and mathematics or STEM, where inclusivity and diversity can be a real problem. I know this only too well myself as a female Southeast Asian mechanical engineer. I was kind of a minority within a minority back then. I'm Dr. Shanice Omara, an engineer turned broadcaster. Throughout my career, I've worked on and reported on some cutting-edge technology and innovation. And through my television work, I've met some incredibly inspiring women from a diverse range of STEM fields. Talking to these exceptional ladies has often left me feeling empowered, hopeful, and excited about life. I believe silence will enrich you too. Every week, a woman in STEM shares her unique experiences with absolutely no pressure in having to promote her accomplishments or guard her impressive reputation, because I've come to realize that everyone is just way more open and relaxed when they're anonymous, so I deliberately disguise my guest voices so that we're just connecting as human beings rather than human doings. It's my hope that we really relate to what we chat about today. If so, please do subscribe to Silence and maybe even rate and review the show. I'd love to have your feedback. This week, my guest is in the field of marine ecology. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm getting ready to go out
1: into the field in the next couple of days. So I'm pretty anxious, um, but excited. And so that's pretty awesome.
0: And when you say getting ready to go into the field, do you mean going into the ocean?
1: Yeah. Well, hopefully not intentionally going into the ocean, and maybe accidentally. Um, we're I'm going out with a bunch of my colleagues into uh, the Arctic Ocean to do some work on sea ice, and so we're about to leave um, and disembark on that amazing adventure. And yeah, it's 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 one of the few field activities that's still happening right now at this time. So it's pretty, yeah, yeah, it's pretty incredible during COVID
0: and yes, everything. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So has it impacted uh, you being able to go out and do your research?
1: Yeah, you know, we've had uh, significant delays and we had some logistical uh, hurdles, more logistical hurdles than um, originally envisioned because of COVID. So it's, pr- it's incredible that we're doing it, but there have been difficulties and we've had to reshuffle personnel that is going into the field. Um, and actually, my participation is a result of some of those uh, personnel shuffles So I wasn't expecting actually to be out in the field at this time um, for this project, but uh, it's clear that it's necessary for me to go. And so I'm trying to rise to the challenge.
0: Wow. I mean, first of all, it sounds like where you're going is extremely remote. I mean, cut off from the rest of the world. Is this something that you do regularly for your research?
1: Yeah, I think for anyone who has experience working on large research vessels, um, they are accustomed in their fieldwork to going to very isolated places um, and being on a platform with a small group of persons um, for an extended period. So I am at the point now in my career where I have all, over a year at sea um, total and that's, I guess that's been in the last 15 years that I've accumulated that much time. And there are researchers that have much more time at sea than that, but we're, we're headed to headed to the Arctic. Um, And so we will be the only ship out there. And we will certainly be the only people working on sea ice out there. Um, And it's myself and about 60 other scientists and 40 other crew members. So about 100 of us um and it's extremely isolated we have amazingly um some communication channels sometimes whatsapp works but we're prim- primarily limited to um email ships email we each get an account and email gets bundled and sent out transmitted every 20 minutes uh-huh. we, yeah so it's it's the, the the it's very hard to have a conversation let's put it that way with anyone that you would typically have a conversation with
0: So wait, that is so like complex and multi-layered. Let's break it down. So you're with about 100 people on a ship in Mm -hmm. the middle of the Arctic. It must be the most cold temperatures one could ever um, experience here on planet Earth. Like how, how do you cope with, first of all, the environment?
1: Yeah, so it is very cold out there. We're actually going out in what we consider Arctic summer, so temperatures are warming up, um, but it is cold. I mean, for for an average civilian, the temperatures we experienced at the beginning of the campaign and in the winter were like minus 50 degrees centigrade, oh which isn't the coldest on Earth, but it's pretty close. Um, so gearing up is like a whole ordeal in and of itself. We have these um, one-piece suits that we wear, Um, And they're insulated and they have flotation integrated into them um, and they they keep us warm. But as you can imagine, they're not, I mean,
0: I'm I'm picturing Michelin Man. (laughs)
1: Yeah, we kind of look like Michelin Man. Exactly. Uh, Yeah, astronaut style without the cool helmet. Um, (laughs) So, so yeah, that's kind of what we look like. I mean, and it's hard to move around in, you know, it's bulky. It's not like necessarily elegant and you're trudging through centimeters, tens of centimeters of snow. Um, walking on ice, and you you have to remind yourself, you know. I mean, we're all very careful out there, but there's about two meters of ice between us and four thousand meters of ocean. Wow. Yeah, and so people, I mean, you know, you, you you walk off a gangway onto the ice, and it looks it looks stable and it looks thick, and you kind of get, you know, you get accustomed. Oh, it's it's easy. I'm accessing it, and then suddenly the ice begins to break up. We will experience ice melting, and suddenly you realize, oh, actually, you're treading on the
0: ice. Yeah,
1: we're just a little, we're just a little floating island of ice on top of a very, very deep ocean.
0: How how do you wrap your head around working in something so extreme? Like, are you trying? Do you can do you compartmentalize? your mind to say okay it's only for a limited amount of time and then i'll get back to my normal life where i can exchange emails over seconds instead of 20 minutes like
1: yeah so you know now the type of com- communication we have compared to what we had 10 years ago is pretty remarkable so i when i first started my career i was actually on research vessels for um 3 to 4 weeks at a time in the middle of the pacific and we had one computer terminal for all of the scientists and all of the crew to send an email, Um, and there was no access to satellite telephone um, for for the participants. It was only for um, maritime issues, Um, so we didn't have access to telephone, and so we were extremely cut off. So Compared to that, what we have now is pretty amazing, but certainly very different. For myself, um, I do compartmentalize. Um, I, I actually have found, I, I mean, I inadvertently do this, but I call it expedition mode. Um, and yeah, I you know, you just flick a switch. So it's expedition mode now instead of like economy mode or, or like work time mode, whatever that may be. And expedition mode for me means really getting focused on the task at hand and making sure that my team understands that we're not thinking about what's happening at home. Like that's not what's on the forefront of our mind. What's on the forefront of our mind is the task in front of us, the day in front of us, the conditions, because we need to be fully tuned in and aware. So I completely go into a compartmentalized scenario. And I mean I'm I'm fortunate in that I can do that. Um, I have a very capable partner. Um, she's extremely independent uh, and she's accustomed to me being away. And so I, I'm i able to do what I do and to compartmentalize because I kind of am secure in knowing that she's able to manifest life <laughs> in my absence. Um, and she, yeah.
0: Is that something you had to get used to? Because, you know, if I leave my relationship for, you know, a few days on a shoot, for example, like it's <sighs> – it's such a kind of th- trying to get understanding um isn't the easiest you know having to leave commitments behind not showing up for kind of the family that kind of thing like it's it's not really welcomed no um yeah it's atypical i would say
1: you know um a lot of people in the past it's pri- you know my field was primarily dominated by male Male scientists, and part of the reason there, I think, is the, the difference in uh, expectations of gender roles. And so right. it was, you know, it was yeah. not possible for a, a woman who has all of these family obligations and duties to just disappear. You know, to be not only are you disappearing onto a platform where you can't be accessed, um, and you can't get yeah. home quickly, like they also can't necessarily communicate with you quickly. So it's not like you're available yeah. to anyone to help make decisions you know, to discuss a a topic and to use um, that discourse as a way of coming to some type of decision. So families have to operate without us. um, And that's usually not typical.
0: You must have to have a massive level of trust with your partner.
1: Oh, um, yeah. I mean, that and that, talking about things you have to work on and come into, I think this is one thing that I see sometimes being problematic for others. Um, because mm. of the communication being so limited, is that you know, there are always questions about, you know, you're out there, it's so long, you'll get lonely, et cetera, et cetera. What, how do you compensate mm. for that? You know, and the 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 reality is for me, is that um we've been together for quite a long time. And I sort of I sort of said at the very beginning of that relationship, be aware. I'm in I'm I'm a seagoing a marine ecologist. I will be away potentially for long stints of time in places where you cannot contact me and sometimes that work may appear to be dangerous it's not as dangerous as you think it is but it may appear dangerous to you and you may be very worried about me and so if you don't think you can handle that maybe we need to reconsider if this is the right if this is the right match slash fit and, you know, that evolves over time and certainly my partner is concerned, I mean, I'm going to a very remote place if something happens, even if you cut your finger, right, we have a hospital and a doctor on board who has surgical experience, but just those small things you suddenly realize, whoa, getting a cut on your finger out there is not the same as getting a cut at home, you know, that you can just bandage mm-hmm. up and if anything happens, you grab some antibiotics, you grab some, yeah, it's, it's a bit different. Um, But yeah, there's a trust, there's a certain level of trust that you must build with both your partner and your family and friends that, you know, this is not because I don't value our personal connection and our relationships. Mm. It's because I'm, I'm pursuing something that's important to me.
0: Right. And, and that actually perfectly leads me on to, you know, why did you get into this field? Like what inspired you? When did this whole journey begin for you?
1: Oh, I was I was a little kid who who basically loved being outside, and I grew up in a place where I was never more than twenty minutes from something salty, like so the ocean. Um, and it happened that <clears throat> I was pretty good in school. I liked school. I was I was curious and. Um, my parents fostered that curiosity and they supported it. And so it was sort of natural when my interest in science became stronger and more apparent that my, um, the joy that I gleaned from being near the ocean sort of melded with this idea of going into Marine science. So like in science, you know, there's general science when you're a kid and there's all these different things that you learn about chemistry and physics and Mm -hmm. biology. Um, But for me, It was clear that there was I could I could pursue science of the sea, and that was pretty intriguing because the sea and the ocean and access to the ocean was very natural to me. I grew like I said I grew up having access to the ocean, being at beaches, being interested in seaweed. You know, I'm that kid that's down the ways um, on the beach walk who's literally picking up all the seaweed and like looking at it and touching it and smelling it. So like, um, it kind of was. A natural thing to think, oh, right, I love, I love science. I really like how science works. Can I also meld that somehow with my passion for being around the ocean? And so that led me to a marine biology degree and then an oceanography degree. um, and that led me to where I am now.
0: And it sounds like what you're doing now is pretty much like what you did when you're a curious kid, kind of sampling things and you know analyzing things and just, you know, interacting with it.
1: Yeah. I, I think science is, I mean, I don't know, I can't speak too much about the public perception of what science is if you're, because I've been in science um, for so long, but I've always thought of it as like the best way to continue the childhood uh, adventures, Mm. right? It's a, it's a field where you're paid where they encourage you to be curious where they inc- where questions are welcome. So instead of being in a job where you know you just do what you're supposed to do, this is this is a field and a job where your your creativity and your um your curiosity are fostered and they're encouraged and they're rewarded. You know, with more things that you can do that are that you're curious about. So for me, be, being a scientist is just like. Having access, I mean don't get me wrong, I still have adult responsibilities and budgets to balance and administrative paperwork to do, but that that's a small price to pay for the opportunity to go out there and like take an ice core and look at that ice core and see if there are cells inside of it or see if there's sediment inside of it and and talking with your colleagues about like cool things that you've observed and other tests or experiments that you want to do i mean it's It's pretty incredible to have that type of job. Um, and for people to say, yeah, we would like to pay you to do that, to to just be curious and to and tell us about what you find. And that's the job of a
0: scientist. Yeah. And your job really does allow you to explore and travel. I mean, you've been to some incredible places, haven't you? Yeah,
1: I, I've been to some really um, amazing places. So I started my work my graduate work you know so i was first in rhode island um and that's where i grew up and i decided to continue my studies there and so that campus is right on the ocean and then i went to go and pursue biological oceanography and began a graduate program for my master's and eventually my phd at the university of hawaii Um, and that put me right in honolulu so like literally where i am now is the furthest i've ever been from the ocean And I'm still along a river estuary, so you can imagine just how spoiled I am. Like I have a high, like a high standard of like where I can go next, um, because I need to be (laughs) near something salty. Um, And yeah, I mean, I've gone to those places and worked in those places, but I've been out in the out in the North Pacific. Um, for more than 60 or 70 days over a course of multiple expeditions. One expedition I was in uh, was during the summer months and we got chased away by a hurricane. So we couldn't, we were out there. Um, the weather forecast showed that there was a hurricane several hundred kilometers from us and we had to pull up all of our instruments and suspend work and go and hide in the shelter of the Hawaiian islands and things like that. Um, I've been to the South Pacific Actually, as well, during my time when I was studying in Hawaii, we left from Chile and we did a transect across the South Pacific to Easter Island. So I've been to Easter Island um, as well. And then since I've been at this new position, I've primarily focused on polar science and I've been to the Arctic now um, four or five times and once to the Southern Ocean. So I've also like had the opportunity um, to work And all of these different places and to see, I mean, I've now, well, it was an ice shelf, but I think it counts because the ice shelf was connected to Antarctica, but I've actually now been to every continent, which amazing. It's crazy to me that this is possible.
0: I mean, the, the travel aspect of your job just sounds so enticing and like it would, uh, for me who loves traveling, like it would convince me to go into STEM, but I must say what's even more convincing, um, is your absolute enthusiasm for what you do um you genuinely sound happy with your life and uh (laughs) I think that's kind of something that turns women away from stem it's like oh I don't want a life of kind of you know doing really complex stuff and being up against kind of guys and competitive like it doesn't sound like your life involves anything like that. You just sound happy.
1: No, but it does. I mean, it does. But the question in, in like anyone's life, though, is what are you going to focus on? Right? So don't get me wrong. It's not all rainbows and sunshine. There's plenty of difficult, um, challenging scenarios that I have been in that I probably would prefer not to have been in and remember. Um, And, and, and it's tough. You know, there's still a lot of bias and there's still um some level of having to prove oneself whether it's because I'm whether it's because I'm a woman or it's because I'm Asian American or because I may not you know may, may not appear the way in which a person would envision a person in this position to be so there are some stereotypes that I I encounter that I have to break down and my approach has typically been to you know overwhelm people with my energy and to to show them, look, you may have your doubts, you may not be convinced yet. But just watch, like just pay attention to what I'm doing. and, and, And judge me based on what I can do and what I can accomplish and how I convey my ideas. And maybe you will see that it doesn't matter. That I am maybe early in my career, or that I'm a woman, or that I don't have 20 years of polar science experience. Um, maybe, and so I try to approach life and work in that way. And I try to remind I, I don't actually have to remind myself um, because it's every day of my life that I'm thinking about what type of opportunities I have, but I'm very fortunate. I and I think you know, if you're aware of the world, not just your small community, not just the upbringing that you have, but you really pay attention to what else is happening around the world. I would have to say that I am, I live a life with opportunities and luxuries that are probably not afforded to more than a third of the world's population, if not more. Mm. So what can I complain about? I mean, Yes, some days at work are horrible. They they stink. The meeting went too long. We didn't accomplish anything. I missed a deadline. You know, a project didn't get funded. Um, instruments are breaking in the field. Things are breaking in the laboratory. Yeah, these are, these are problems. Um, but in the big scheme of things, I'm here. I'm alive. And I have the opportunity each and every day to do something. And I have I have the independence and the option to choose what to do with my life that day. And so you, I think it's important to actively choose how you pursue and address your day. And you can, you can address it with being like afraid and bogged down. And don't get me wrong, fear is an important feeling. But you can also approach it by saying, wow, today is another day to do something awesome so like what are we doing today where
0: did you learn (laughs) that who taught you that
1: to just like approach life and be like this is awesome
0: yeah I, i
1: don't know i mean it's hard to say you know i i had a really i think i had a really good upbringing my parents were actually very strict i felt like they were strict and um very disciplined and demanding but they instilled in me Um, at some point, it wasn't about what they wanted me to do. At some point, it was about what I expected of myself. So they instilled in me the need to perform, but it wasn't for them. In the beginning, you know, they gave guidance, they gave structure. But at some point, it was mine. It, It was me who was going to benefit from that. And I understood
0: that. Why did you come to that turning point?
1: because you i think you have to take i think you have to be accountable right as a not just as an adult but as a human being you have to realize that at some some point it isn't that person's it isn't that person's fault it's not that they told you to to do the extra credit homework it's not that they told you specifically to you know um, join the basketball team and the academic decathlon team and the physics team. Like you, you, you had some autonomy there and decided that that's what you wanted to do. And maybe, you know, on some level you felt pressure as a child or a teenager to excel in that way. But at the end of the day, it wasn't my parents who had to do the extra work and the extra studying and the extra meetings with their team to compete in the academic decathlon. I had to do that. And it wasn't them who was going to basketball practice six days of the week. Um, when I was in high school and putting in hours and hours in the gym, that was me. And so they gave me both the structure, but also the strength to be independent. But being independent means also being accountable. Um, and so I just felt, you know, you're accountable for your life. You're accountable for how you feel about where you are, what your place is in, in, in the world, and there's going to be this constant, depending on where you are and who you are in the world there's going to be probably lots of people and lots of structures um, that tell you you don't belong there or that you, you're this isn't for you. Um, and you have to decide whether or not that's true. And I would say for women in STEM, we've probably heard that over decades, that this wasn't a place for a woman to be, but that's right. certainly not the case. Um, and so you, I think it's important that, you know you kind of challenge the norm and you challenge what people think of you without actually knowing anything about you so
0: do you ever get bogged down with those archaic perspectives
1: yeah i, I there's there's ageism in science you know people want you to cut your teeth um for a while doing something before they actually respect you and it's not necessarily that you're really good at it. It's just that you've been around long enough. So that's one one thing that kind of uh, affects me. I think, um, especially in the role that I'm playing right now, where I'm responsible for more than just my own science. I'm responsible for facilitating and supporting the science of others and their project goals. So I have a lot of responsibility. I think the other thing is that, um, you know, being a woman in STEM especially uh, when I was you know, heavily engaged in oceanography and still am to some extent, it, you're a minority. You're a minority yeah. um, for sure. When you walk into any meeting, when you uh, look at the list of speakers that are presenting at a symposium, um, when you look at the list of co-authors on a publication even, um, oftentimes just being a woman means that you're automatically a minority. And then within that, I mean, I'm an Asian American, East Asian, um, and while there are probably lots of East Asians in certain sectors of STEM, I would say in the natural sciences, um, especially ecology, there are very few. um, There are very few number of mid-career and or senior career level role models that are Asian American oceanographers. So that in itself is is another, another myor- minority.
0: When I listen to you and picture, you know, one woman amongst a sea of men, uh, pun intended, <laughs> <laughs> um, I just think, like, I, I just don't think people would see that you're different in the sense as in they wouldn't alienate you because your confidence and your self-belief in what you're doing is so powerful that I certainly wouldn't want to ever rain on your parade because, you know, I, I just want to kind of, I want you to keep doing your science because you just seem to love it so much. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, maybe that's the key, you know, rather than believing the naysayers, just say, you know what, I believe in myself so much that I'm going to prove you wrong. That's that's the attitude I get from you. Yeah, that's
1: certainly part of it. It's certainly part of believing in yourself and believing that you belong there. I meet so many people, both men and women, especially women, who say, "But but I'm not invited, Allie. I'm not I'm not invited to to the table. I'm not invited to the meeting. How can I how can I show them that That I should be invited. And I was like, do you need to be invited? That's the first question. Is it closed? First, address whether or not the door is closed, or if you just haven't recognized that the door, there is no door, you just need to step through. And they kind of just, some people just looked at me and said, wait a minute, what? And I was like, Mm -hmm. you don't need to be invited. Stop waiting to be invited. Walk through the door sit in the front. Yes. Sit in the front. Ask a question, raise your hand, speak up. And I think we don't say that to enough to each other. Women themselves don't say that to enough to each other. And it's like, why aren't yeah. we saying that? We should be saying that. And that's the other thing that I think is so important is that if you're if you're moving forward, if you feel that you have something to contribute, um, then there's probably a person sitting on your right-hand side and your left-hand side that's that also has something important to contribute. And the question is, are we actively creating an environment and an atmosphere where that person feels that they can voice what they think? And I think that's important to do. So I also think, you know, kind of, you know, shaking other people and saying, hey, you you, you can be there, you can speak up. You just have to believe that what you have to say and what you have to contribute is important. And it's worth it. And sometimes I need someone else to tell them that before they believe that for themselves. Mm,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I must confess, I have spent quite a lot of my engineering career with a massive chip on my shoulder, feeling like I needed to prove that I deserve to be there and working extra hard to prove and getting extra qualifications to prove. And it was just so much proving and it was exhausting. Um, And, you know, believing in yourself isn't easy. Um, But I love the fact that you said, you know, if you can't get somebody else, you know, to to listen to somebody else believing in you, that's so crucial. Yeah. You know, what kind of role models have you had?
1: I think my my first role model was certainly my parents, right? I mean, these are the people that have spent the most time investing in me as a human being. And you know, Mother's Day was just was just a few weekends ago, or something like that. And I I I, I sent a message to my mom. <clears throat> I had called her a couple of days earlier, and I was thinking about it. And I was just, you know, I I thanked her for being for being strong and for being steady and for for being the one who stepped back from a career so that she could raise the family. And while that looks like a very gender like normative role for the man to go out and work and for the woman to stay at home and raise the family, um, I think it was probably the most important contribution that... It's not the most important contribution that she made in her life, but it was the most important contribution she made to my life. And that says a lot about a person, to put another person before themselves. Um, And that takes, it's easy to identify what you want to do and what is best for you. But to identify what it takes that you must invest to give the best opportunity in life for another, I think that's incredible. And that's what my mom did for me. And so I recognize very much so that she ran our family. She made it work. My dad just had to go every day to work, do his job and come home. And everything else in our life was because my mother made it possible. The schedules, the doctor's appointments, the, the homework, the healthcare, the nutrition, everything. She managed that whole thing. She was the conductor of that life. Um, don't, don't get me wrong, my dad's an important guy too. But from a day to day, she she was the one.
0: I just don't know how women do it. And, and and you know, and when when people talk about men being the stronger gender, I'm like, absolutely not. No. It's not yeah. measured in muscle power.
1: Mm-hmm. No, my, I mean, uh, most of the, the skills that I learned, I realized for like project management, which I don't have any formal training, but that's primarily what I do these days and uh, multitasking and organization. That's, that's from my mom. My mom was extremely organized. There were three of us growing up. At one point we were all in different schools and she was shuttling us around and she had schedules to keep in m- mind you, this is all before the day of synchronized calendars. Yeah. Her calendar was like a master piece of paper. Um, somewhere near the kitchen table that she filled no. in by hand right there's no copies of that like the only copy of that is her mind walking around <laughs> making sure that everyone <laughs> is fed and alive yeah there's no synchronization there there's no like alert there's no chirp that you set about so-and-so's appointment that's all encapsulated in her and so When i think about that and people see me they're like where did this come from i was like well my mom's like we uh, it's just organization and i take for granted often that everyone else has this type of training and then i find out which was rude awakening to be honest that actually no most people have no organization they have no no concept of how many things must be happening in parallel um for it to kind of look streamlined and to actually to, to actually work but yeah. yeah,
0: and a lot of men uh, are able to manage their lives because uh, they've got people doing the organisation for them.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, um,
0: and that's what I—that's what I really um, am so acutely aware of today is that women are such unsung heroes because we do so much of it without a flap. You know, we're mm-hmm. just, we just—we just. We just do it. We just do what we need to do. And we we don't expect this kind of song and dance and like marching parade for all the things we do, Um, which is very different to the kind of masculine um, approach, which is like, you know, to always be uh, celebrated for what Mm -hmm. they accomplish. And um, I personally you know, feel like I have quite a strong feminine and masculine side to me. And there's always this part of me that just so, so, so massively needs to be recognized for what I achieve. Um, And I just, and then the the feminine side of me is like, no, just leave it. You don't need to have recognition of that. You know, just, just do what you want to do because you want to nurture, because you want to keep things together and, be committed and loyal to something you know and it's it's quite a conflict
1: yeah it's so interesting that you mentioned that and I actually read something somewhere recently and I can't recall where it was but this whole concept something related to what you just described this internal conflict between the feminine and the masculine and Mm -hmm. the the way in which western society perhaps more strongly but probably many societies um influence Children at a very young age, based on their gender, and it mm-hmm. was this this excerpt was about how when children are playing, we encourage and reward male children when they jump off of um, a jump off of something on the playground, right? We, uh, we applaud them for taking the risk and uh, and scaling the wall or or going right. down the slide by themselves or um, climbing climbing the rope ladder. And the opposite happens with female children, where we caution them to the danger and the risk of climbing the rope ladder. Be careful. You might, you know, so we instill already the sense that a woman should be cautious and careful. So true. And a, 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 a boy should be encouraged to take on the challenge. And so I think, you know, there's so much about how we indoctrinate these concepts that I don't think many of us are even aware of that. And when I read that, I was like, oh my goodness, this is so true. And you can see it in adults and you're just like, oh my goodness. Right.
0: Yeah. And listening to you makes me realize, because so many women on my podcast have talked about the support and encouragement that they were given. And there is a distinct difference between the women who were supported and encouraged and told they can be whatever they want what you can choose as long as you're happy. um, And I trust that you're going to choose what's best for you and them being successful. And a strong correlation between not having that support and encouragement, uh, having a very sort of like fear-based upbringing and them struggling
1: Mm
0: -hmm. with their careers.
1: Yeah. I mean, my parents were like, you can't be anything you want to be. What we need you to be is practical. We want you to have a good life and a good living. So try to focus on making a good living. So there are very practical people. But in, in turn, I found out that there are lots of things beyond a doctor, an engineer, or a lawyer that I could be that would fulfill those requirements, quote unquote requirements. I was like, oh, okay, I need to just be able to make a living, maybe pay rent or buy, pay a mortgage, feed myself, you know, feed myself, not be a burden on my parents or society. I think there's lots of things I could do. And I was like, okay, that's cool. And I think it's completely strange. Like my siblings, they they don't have this type of lifestyle. And the fact that I don't know where I will be next year, they think that's just absurd. (laughs) They're like, what do you mean? You don't know if you'll have a job or where you will be working or where you will be living. How can that be possible? Aren't you, aren't you worried? Aren't you freaked out? And I'm like, no, I'm totally capable. I can apply for jobs, I can look for where to work. I was like, how hard is it? I mean, it's like, this is not so challenging, but for persons who live a totally different life and a different lifestyle, that stability, that steadiness, that's sort of like the bedrock of what they need. Um, And I think, you know, we need to start talking about how we create uh, resilience and capacity in people Mm -hmm. based on what what they have of themselves you know
0: a still- well, to encourage it yeah. because i think we all are born with resilience i mean we made it out through the room you know yes. like we we we're, we're born fighters and and i feel like it's conditioned out of us and i'm so fascinated to kind of think about that example of boys being encouraged to take that leap mm-hmm. of faith and girls being encouraged not to because it is A metaphor for the way we are as adults and you know I often because I don't have children and I often um think about you know why my life turned out that way because I love kids and Mm. um you know I'm good with my nephew Mm. and he thinks I'm the coolest aunt ever and you know so I am kiddie-ish yeah you know and I I I do have this maternal side to me but I never got around to having them and I think Again, it's that internal conflict, kind of confusion, over. Well, I want to take risks. I want to challenge myself, learn about my capacity to give to this world, um, and and what I'm capable of in terms of you know from my own skill set, um, and the idea of motherhood feels very much about being selfless and kind of giving yourself over to the development of another human being which is as worthy and admirable as developing your own career for example but it it requires a very different mindset Mm
1: -hmm. yeah
0: and I've never been able to sort of like figure it out really
1: yeah Uh, my partner makes fun of me that when we talk about the idea of having children that this is just an excuse for me to have more toys in the house which is actually partially true so i i I, you know i i feel like you know people have children for all different types of reason and i reasons and i can completely understand exactly what you just described about being good with children i also have nieces and nephew and a nephew and i'm also really good with them and i love interacting with them and you know the time for me to actually think of having my own family is getting smaller and smaller as i get older and become more um, involved in intense work um, which doesn't leave much space or energy but most importantly much time right time is probably the most critical resource here much time to devote to 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 investing in another human being um the way that i think a child deserves to be invested in um, if you bring one into the world And so I I often struggle with that, you know, on the one hand, I think, wow, is it is it fair to bring um, another person into my crazy world like this world overall where where we are now with global climate and global warming and a destruction of lots of natural systems and uncertainty about um, the security of the environment and what it provides us as human beings. So I have to worry about that. But I also worry as an individual, do I have capacity? Am I willing to make the, the difficult choices? Will I make the right choice when I have to? But because I think, unfortunately, at the end of the day, our disposition to be resilient, um, even though we're born with that, are, we also have somewhat of a disposition to be selfish, right? To, to, so it's sort of hard to understand how one will really react and perform in that capacity unless unless you do it.
0: <laughs> to be, to be honest, I feel like education really threw a spanner in all of the works because, um, for me, education gave me a goal um, and a, a pathway, which um, basically pushed the whole idea of motherhood to one side because I'm not going to spend, you know, almost eight years at university. Mm-hmm to then not apply it in a job but then once I'm in a job I want to be able to you know climb up the ladder of that job and it's like when do kids fit into that and I really feel like education um kind of knocks everything out of sync um I once had a woman on this podcast who got children um out of the way she actually described it <laughs> really early in her life like in her twenties yeah. um and by the time they were older she went back and did a PhD and she's now absolutely thriving in artificial intelligence um because she has the total focus to do that yeah and I when I heard her first describe it I was like wow I didn't even think to have mm, right. kids in my 20s.
1: Yeah
0: you know yeah. I was a kid myself. Yes exactly I I totally
1: agree. I would never have, I I never thought about that. In my early 20s, I was so focused on other things, the idea of even having, yeah, no, I couldn't be responsible for someone else at that stage. So that's pretty, yeah, I wouldn't have crossed my mind as well.
0: And also, I would have, um, I've always wanted to be like a wise mum.
1: You know, if I if I
0: ever was to become one, like I wouldn't want to be the kind of lost, confused, insecure 20 year old raising another human being, you know. And, you know, and and, but the the bummer thing is, I, I know we have technology to try and bypass this problem, but we only have a limited amount of time to have children, obviously. And that's just something that men don't have to deal with. And I find that incredibly unfair of mother nature to have like arranged it that way. So I have this like real like chip on my shoulder about it. I just feel like today I would be the best mom I could ever have been. Yeah, And I feel like, you know, my window is kind of closing as well. So
1: yeah, but you know, the fact that you talk about time, and you talk about education, having, you know changed the timing of things and what the possibilities were because why would you, you know, spend 8 years in education only to then perhaps never use it. And I was actually thinking this this is a really interesting thing. So I have been, as you can imagine, quite driven and quite focused for for as long as I can imagine and I've never actually taken a proper break and I injured I injured myself a couple of months ago, and it forced me to stop moving, like literally to stop moving. And I was left with my thoughts, which don't scare me, but it really gave me some time to sort of stop the constant moving, the physical moving, but also the brain moving, and to sort of look at my life. You know, I was sitting on a beach. Um, I was injured. I couldn't go play in the ocean, which was why I was there to begin with. And so I did some reading for myself, some leisure reading. And mind you, my, I have a stack. I have a huge list of things that I should be reading, right? Like scientific works that I am way behind on <laughs> that I should be reading in my time to read. And I had no interest. And I just, I couldn't do it. I didn't have capacity for that. So I ended up reading other stuff, just leisure reading. And it occurred to me that in looking at where i am right now in my life um time is the most valuable resource i you know i don't have none of us actually have i would say a guaranteed um job or a guaranteed livelihood what we have is today and time and a, a concept about what we may want to do with that time and it's so valuable and you know i went through a couple of really personal challenging things last year that made me have to really address time and, and its value and and how little of it we have and how precious life actually is. And so when you talk about this huge investment that we as individuals in science have made to educate ourselves, to improve ourselves, to pursue a career, I often wonder that if it's our own personal drive, like this is what I asked myself, is it my own personal drive that continues to push me to choose my work, to choose this education, to choose the investment that I made in the past that was the appropriate choice that I made at 25 to still be the reason, to still be the the evidence that I use to inform my decision today. And it kind of freed me to realize that I don't owe my 25-year-old self an explanation for what my 38-year-old self is doing with her life because things change. Priorities Mm -hmm. change. And at some point, I think you realize, maybe if you're lucky, you realize this when you're very young. I only think that I've realized this in the last year or two, but wow, I have a limited time to do things whatever those things may be some of them may be oriented around my studies and my career and my work with other people and some of it may be as simple as spending time with my aging parents and i can't do both of those in parallel i can't be a stellar project manager and work 100 hours a week and still put quality time in with my parents or my partner so what is it going to be and I too have invested heavily in education. And people often ask me, after this big project is over, what's next? What's the bec- next big thing on the horizon for you? And I say to them, uh, I don't know, but whatever it is, I'm excited about it, but I'm not gonna worry about it. I'm going to see what it is. And maybe it means you know, doing carpentry for a year, like learning a new skill, because maybe that's just what's going to make me happy. And maybe it's just a way of enriching your life, recognizing that there's only a limited amount of time to enrich mm-hmm. your life. And so I constantly feel that tug of war between pursuing something that's bigger than myself and also recognizing that just as a individual human being in this big world, that at the end of the day, sometimes the simple things and the freedom of not feeling the pressure of what you should be doing um given all of the investments you've made that those are the things you have to do and 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 to, to feel like they're a waste and i think that's the scary part is that and maybe this is a thing about gender and maybe it isn't is that a lot of my colleagues my peers we're right at the stage in our careers where you're either transitioning to a permanent position a tenure track position in research or academia or you're not and you're off doing something else. And in our field, we were calling those alternative career paths. But the reality is when 98% of the people are doing alternative career paths, guess what? That's not an alternative career path. That's the majority. That's what most people are pursuing. They're not actually going strictly into academic and or basic research. And so we kind of been trying to change the tone of that it's not an alternative career path it's just a different career path um and i feel like now that i've had the opportunity to work in the capacity of being sort of like a project manager i wonder about what opportunities, what new opportunities are on the horizon that may bring me beyond just basic research and science despite how much i love it and despite that i spent years of schooling to get where i am um, yeah.
0: I have two last questions for you. Um, what does failure mean to you?
1: Oh, this is this is a good question. This is a tough question. It's a good question, though. Um,
0: will put it another way. Yeah. Um, what is your relationship with failure? <laughs>
1: Intimate. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean... You know, people hear me talk about what we're, what I'm doing now, and um, I'm certainly really energized and enthusiastic about what I do. But failure is a part of that, and and you, I don't think anyone will ever meet anyone who's successful in any way who hasn't uh, encountered devastating failures um, of all sorts. Um, so my relationship with failure is that it's an integral part of life, because. Failure means that you tried, right? The only, the only way to succeed is to try. And success, success is not guaranteed. So the alternative is failure. But I mean, is it a failure or is it just a different outcome? I often tell young students this all the time. They're like, my, my experiment failed. And I'm like, did it fail, or did it just go a different way than you expected? They're like, oh, it totally went a different way than I expected. I was like, but how do you how do you consider that failure? I mean, failure is a failure is relative. It's, it's it's all. It about, you it's something totally you didn't know. Frame of reference. It's totally something you didn't know exactly yeah. before you did this test. We didn't know that this piece of equipment wasn't going to work in this way. We didn't know that those organisms weren't, weren't going to res- were going to respond in this way. You've just discovered something we didn't know. So it feels like a failure, but it's not. It's just It's just something new. It's something unexpected.
0: So that's one of the greatest aspects of science, I think, discovering what we didn't already know. Absolutely.
1: And so you have to, if you're gonna be in science, you have to be accustomed to failure for everything we put out there that looks like a success, I tell you, there are many, many failures. Small ones, big ones, personal ones, professional ones. Yeah, absolutely. And so failure, like I said, it is an intimate relationship. It's hard to not feel down about those types of things, but I think it's just, for me, about a frame of reference. And there are times in my life, especially in my education, where I felt like I was really failing where it was not a distinctive failure, like a test or an exam not passed, it was a, a a series of years where I just felt like I wasn't performing, and that made me feel like I was failing. Mm. Yeah, and so that I think that term, like that kind of failure, is not this distinct noun with a time and place. It's like, unfortunately, for some of us, like a mood, like a, a a portion of our lives where you feel like, wow, those last two years of the PhD, ooh, mostly felt like failing, definitely didn't feel like I was achieving, you know, it was coming to the end. And I felt like I was failing because I had set perhaps goals that were either unrealistic, goals that were unrealistic for myself, or goals that didn't make sense in the context of what was happening around me. And... And I think that's also a way in which we sort of become bogged down in this concept of failure. Um, Right. Yeah.
0: And final question, what does having it all mean to you?
1: Having it all? Oh, wow. These are are some deep life questions today. (laughs) Having it all. Oh, you know, for me, like I said... I've been through some personal challenges the the last couple of years while this big project was trying to, you know, get, take off Um, and having it all at, at this time in, in view of everything that's happening. I think firstly, it's having my health and being able to be able-bodied and able-minded. This is something that's absolutely invaluable. No money can buy you your mind. And so that, you know, when you have your mind, I often talk about my mind palace and this is, this is like my number one treasure uh, of myself. And so that, that certainly is one thing, having health. Um, and that's having it all in one way. And then um, having peace, actually, I think, is the other thing. You know, we've talked a lot today about the struggle the conflict, sort of the internal turmoil that comes with pursuing life, um, whether it be work related or personally related. And I think having it all means having both mental health, more probably mental health than physical health, but having a mindset that you can be peace with yourself at peace with the decisions that you've made with the life that you have created that you can be present in whatever it is that is your life there's so i think there's just so much value in that we're so busy all the time and we're so uh maybe even distracted that I think having it all means recognizing that you are alive in a moment and that this is a life that you have created and that you are proud of and that you are able to enjoy it. And if you can't do that, ooh, I'm not sure what you're doing.
0: (laughs) Well, that is an absolutely empowered note to end on. Thank you so much for coming on Silence. Thank you for having me. That's it from my STEM guest this week. Gosh, I'm absolutely floored with the strength and resilience and enthusiasm of my guest this week. So many things have clicked into place for me listening to her today. I mean, It all boils down to just being at one with yourself and at one with something much, much bigger than you. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to rate and review the show and catch you next week on Silence.